1: talk to him. One of the great arts of conversation sounds charming. The only thing that sounds better is the radio.
0: Well, I tune right in at midnight, but tend to tune the radio waves. I hold my thoughts till they were just right. Always listen to the Bradley J. I I was open to views with ears on the news. As they talked, I was focused so much I called on the phone in my car in my home Came out in control and in touch The middle, the sound and the dots that surround
1: When they said speak up, I didn't walk Ooh, Jay
0: Talk Jay, talking, talking
1: WBZ WBZ, thank you, Bruce Springsteen. Thank you for that version of your song. Appreciate it. Thanks to um, Stephen Van Evra. I hope I'm saying that right. Is it? Ivra? It's good enough. It's Evra. Yeah. Okay. You sh- then. I sh- You should have corrected me right away. And now I feel better. Stephen Van Evra. Every time I said it before, I had a doubt. Now I do not. I don't mind being corrected. Ford International Professor, MIT Political Science Department. We're talking about. We talked in the first hour about World War II, and now we're kind of going to switch into the lessons learned. How did that happen? How did Hitler manage to mobilize the people? Uh, it's a, a strategy that's, that's been used before, and it seems to be happening again. Anyway, first we have Ed and Worcester. Let's take care of Ed. I tell you what, Ed, what's up? Well, I, I'm going to get you off topic. I don't know if that—I mean, or slightly off topic. Well, I don't if know. you do, then we, are, we don't want to do this. Well, I wanted him to talk about the war in the Pacific. No, nope. actually, thanks, I appreciate. it. You didn't it. want to do it. No. <laughs> All right, thanks, brother. And I won't count that call against you. Now, first, I promised to talk about fake news and the Jews, and fake news and propaganda. I think are, are those the same thing? Fake news and propaganda. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So propaganda slash fake news and the Jews. You want said? Let's let's talk about that. So there there you go.
0: Well, you asked earlier what, what, what was going on between Hitler's ears when he cooked up the Holocaust. Did he hate the Jewish people? Yes. And my sort of long answer to that is um, all of Europe had been poisoned by fake news against the Jews for several hundred years. And this uh, problem went on steroids uh, after World War I with a new wave of anti-Jewish propaganda that especially influenced the Nazi elite. Um, sort of a, a serendipity, bad set of accidents happen. There, uh, the um, J- uh, Russian uh, secret police had cooked up a, um, a um, fake document, a forgery, called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion which uh, purported to be the records of a nasty conspiracy by a bunch of uh, uh, Jews somewhere off in some dark place to destroy the world. And um, Uh, This document made its way out of Germany after World War I and was brought to the Nazi elite by their big theoretician, this guy named Rosenberg. And uh, Hitler actually incredibly believed it, and so did uh, Eichmann and others in the elite. They literally believed that it was really the case, that there was this conspiracy by a group of very dangerous, very nasty, very powerful Jews somewhere in some faraway place to to wreck Germany and wreck the rest of Europe. This piled on top of a whole history of previous fake news about the Jewish people that had been pervaded by the Catholic Church. Uh, There's a wonderful book about that by David uh, Kurtzer, Daniel Kurtzer rather, uh, about how the papacy had 10 of the 11 previous popes had had engaged in anti-Jewish propaganda uh, during their papacy so there was this uh, tinder lying on the forest floor that could be lit. And then the protocols come along with this even darker, fear-oriented narrative, which, as I said, hard to believe, but the Nazis actually believed it. So, if you want to know uh, when, Hit- you can find these records of Hitler sort of raving about the Jews are out to destroy us and the Jews are out to get us and so on. Like, how could he believe that? The Jewish population in Germany was was one half of one percent. Okay, and the Jews had a long history of being loyal patriots in Germany. And it, Fought in the German side in World so War So he had
1: this document to back him, and, and when he says it, but did he really believe it? Yes,
0: even we, we, we think he believed it. Yes, hmm. and so did others in his elite. Like Adolf how much of belief
1: is wanting to believe?
0: Um, well, he was very quick to hate. He, he he liked to be in that frame of mind, so he didn't take a whole lot of persuading. He also hated. Uh, Pretty much everyone who wasn't uh, an Aryan, quote unquote, which is kind of weird because he himself didn't look terribly blonde, but whatever. Right. Uh, Hate to the Slavs, yeah, <laughs> uh, and wanted to massacre them. Um, uh, the only folks he kind of liked, he reminds me a little bit of Trump in the way that, you know, he only liked the folks who were kind of similar to him in some way, the Brits. He kind of got, he had a warm spot for the Brits and couldn't understand why they wanted to fight him. He kept telling the Brits, guys, you know, come on, let's call it off, let's get along.
1: Too bad they didn't have a little smidge of DNA from Hitler. Do they have nothing? So they could see what was his uh, ethnic makeup?
0: I actually think the Russians did, like, save a jawbone, uh, I think. Well, let's think take a look at it. Of, yeah, what if, if he turned out know, to be I don't Jewish? Know. Uh, there has been that rumor, but I think the historians tend to discount it. Okay. He wasn't uh, part Jewish, at least not in, in living memory. Everybody's related to Lucy, as you know. So Right. Yeah. For now. Right.
1: Until they find the next Lucy. Right. And so a real common denominator in all this. World War II and now is an ideology of victimhood. This is the thing, the most important pin in this whole thing. Can you talk about that? And and now why somehow now it's running rampant. It's the, the fuel here that helps us burn is the internet. So you have a victim ideology and communication with anonymity. Which is a terrible combination, correct?
0: Yeah, you're putting together two things that are, I think, both very poisonous. One is, victim ideologies are inherently very dangerous, and I'm not saying that people who have been victims should forget about it or not ask others to recognize it or not raise it as a complaint. So there's people who've been victimized, and you know, people should, you know, remember that and always insist never again. And uh, wronged people have a right to ask that, you know, justice be done and and, and cru- you know, past uh, cruelties be recognized. But to overdo it is very dangerous because um, uh, I think victim ideologies quickly bleed into a worldview where uh, you, the victim, don't owe anybody anything. And don't bother me, the victim, with uh, wrongs of others or ask me to respect others' rights. They never respected my rights. Why should I respect theirs? And to ask me to do it is to blame the victim. And a lot of the great crimes of modern history have essentially been the crimes or cruelties of uh, people who either had been victims and didn't, shall we say, deal well with it, or who hadn't been victims but believed they had been and committed their crimes in the belief of it. I would say the Balkans in the 90s is an example of that. Both the Serbs and the Croats basically had victim ideologies about what had been done to them, especially by each other, Uh, and they had a more ancient victim ideology that was based on a very real wrong that had been done to all the Balkan people by the uh, Ottomans and by the... Uh, by the Austro-Hungarians. You know, the Balkan peoples had been uh, cruelly uh, colonized and subjugated from both ends by the Turks and, and by the, by the uh, Austro-Hungarians. But then as soon as they got their freedom, what did they do? They basically uh, sullied their national names forever by um, treating each other in the most barbaric way in Yugoslavia. And I'm speaking especially of the Croats and the Serbs who committed you know, horrifying crimes for which you know, they should always atone, and which they don't, by the way. Uh, and then the Germans, their exhibit you know B and C or whatever, C on this, which if you want to understand Nazism, the core of the Nazi philosophy was a victim ideology. We Germans have been wronged. And it was really you know 80, 90 percent focused on World War I and this lie that they told, which is that the British and Russians had encircled them and attacked them and that they were innocent of all the wrongs. But it also was an ideology based, in part on a true history, which is that earlier, the German people had been trampled under by Europe. You know, In the Thirty Years' War, uh, some people estimate a third of the people of Germany were killed. Some people say the number's even bigger. They were used as the playground by the European powers who just rampaged from one end of Germany to the other and just annihilated German civilians. And if you want to understand why Germany sort of became the junkyard dog of Europe then after that for the next many, many scores of years, that whole experience of being the victims was, was very, uh, shall we say, motivating. But then it became kind of an excuse to become Darwinists. I mean, the German public was more believers in social Darwinism by the late 19th century than any other part of the world. They believed this barbaric philosophy, which is that competition and crushing under the weak is a good thing. You should organize your society that way. You're cleansing out the weak when you kind of trample under those who somehow are less fortunate than you are. Uh, they extended that to world politics and world affairs. They said, you know, the strong countries should crush the weak ones because, hey, you're getting rid of the, of the chaff when you do it. I think all that stemmed from this earlier experience. So how people should deal with victimhood is kind of a great question, but Germans, Croats, Serbs, they kind of didn't.
1: So it's important for populations to keep an eye open for rises in perceived victimhood and, yes. and really important for populations to keep an eye open for individuals or organizations that are purposely fanning victimhood ideology. And is it, is it intellectually fair, historically fair, to say that there are similarities between pre-war Germany and now in terms of the fanning of victim ideology?
0: Well, you're talking about the U.S. Yeah. I mean, I see a rise in victim ideology in the U.S., and particularly I see it in the white community. The, the last poll I saw that I thought was pretty scary was that Someone was asking folks from different backgrounds, uh, are you discriminated against? Are you a victim? For the first time, a majority of white people were saying that they were uh, victims of discrimination.
1: As opposed to back in the early days, there was a simple we are superior feeling for whites. Now it's we are victims.
0: Let's just say when you tap yourself into um, white nationalist or white racist thinking, I think um, if you looked at it 50, 60 years ago, it was a teaching of contempt. Black people are inferior and they deserve to be treated second class because they are second class. They're not as capable and they lack character and just are teaching of contempt. Now I think white racism has changed its flavor. It's got a different tone to it. It's a victim flavor. It's that black people are taking things that belong to white people. They're trampling white people under. They're, 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 they're achieving status ahead of white people that they don't deserve. They're and well- not only
1: black population but any non-white.
0: Also, of course, yeah. The, we're now extending it to non-whites of all kinds uh, to include especially Latinos. Uh, Mexican, immigrant, whatever, but uh, uh, it's kind of become a more diffuse idea. But it's, it's it dev- adopted, I think, in the last 20 years this much nastier and I think much more frightening edge, which is that uh, it, 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 it's got this victim edge to it, which uh, it's not so much, ooh, we have contempt for, the, for those other folk, but uh, we also are uh, wronged by them, which gives us a, a right to take action now to, to uh, uh, subjugate them, take from them, Put them in their place,
1: and we're talking about how bad things happen in places like Germany and elsewhere, due to or with the use of victim ideology as a tool. And now we're seeing it blow up in the United States and other places, by the way. And it seems that this thing called the internet may be responsible for that. And part of that responsibility hinges on the anonymity. I'll let our guest put those two together, weld them together.
0: Well, I think one uh, thing I see going on now is that social media is being used to spread hate uh, based on lies. Let's combine these two things, lies and hate, mixed together across the planet. And uh, we're seeing some of it in the US with a whole rise of fake news uh, coming out of uh, uh, social media. But we're seeing it also uh, most dramatically in um, India and in Burma and in the Philippines, not Burma, um, uh, well, Myanmar today is called, you know, Burma was called, you know, they changed the name, uh, Philippines, and um, it, it's behind, it, it's, it's been heavy fuel for the rise of this extremist movement that's now really in a strong position in India, the RSS, which are big backers of the Prime Minister Modi, and Modi is a very radical dude, he wants to do lots of very exciting things, and if he does them, God help us all, he's just cancelled the uh, 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 sort of covenant or agreement, the the, the contract under which uh, Kashmir became part of India 70 years ago and the whole premise for Kashmir acceding to India, they did that on, on August 5th, saying, hey, deal's off. And this is just a huge uh, red flag in front of everybody. This is a terribly dangerous thing he did. Well, why did he do it? He's being influenced by these, these um, ultra-nationalist Hindus, especially focused on this group, the RSS, which you can all look up and see what they're all about. But their basic idea is us Hindus ought to dominate Asia. We've been victims for... For for, for uh, centuries, we were uh, under the boot and enslaved by our neighbors. For centuries, we have a right to payback time, and so let's create the great Hindu heaven by uh, dominating, sort of establishing hegemony over not only India, but get this list: Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal, Bhutan, um, uh, uh, Myanmar, Burma, uh, and uh, some of the maps even have Tibet on them. I mean, this is this is. Uh, (laughs) madness, to put it mildly, Uh, and the idea of of, of disrupting relations with Kashmir right there is madness because it's going to be a huge uh, irritant, shall we say, to Pakistani-Indian relations. Pakistan government already is, uh, not to let anybody off the hook here, I think the Pakistan government is uh, extremists, uh, highly force-prone, the Pakistani military are one of those dangerous, crazy-minded militaries on planet Earth, and here is Modi uh, waving a red flag in front of them, and it all goes back to social media. What's the what's the platform that that M- Modi's folks used to uh, energize the Indian public to vote for his extremist program? It was social media. Then right next door in in Myanmar, Burma, same thing has happened. Uh, those who follow this horrible story, tragic story, criminal story of what happened to the Rohingya people in 2017, 700,000 of them were driven out of uh, out of Burma. These are people who've lived in Burma for hundreds of years. But the Burmese wider uh, Buddhist society um, turned on them. And through social media, demagogues, especially, can you believe it, rather counterintuitive, Buddhist monks, folks from the Buddhist uh, uh, clergy, uh, spread the lie that these um, Rohingya were somehow uh, recent immigrants, not legitimate uh, uh, citizens of Burma, uh, up to no good. Uh, and uh, expel them at at gunpoint, murdered thousands in the course of it all, and have driven them out into just living in these mud fields. Buddhists? Yeah. Doesn't sound very Buddhist Buddhist to me. Yeah, they're supposed to respect life and be nice guys and all that stuff, but there are two nasty strains of Buddhism sort of out there in the world, one in Burma and one in Sri Lanka, and, you know, they ought to get with the larger Buddhist program, but they haven't seemed to have heard of it.
1: Was victim ideology involved in here?
0: Uh, Not so much, I don't think. It was more a teaching of contempt, but it's it's the use of social media for hate. And I guess the bottom line is, I think we have a fundamental problem with the internet. It's a technology that allows people to communicate without accountability. And in general, when people uh, aren't held accountable for their actions, they tend to behave a whole lot worse. And the internet is designed to permit uh anonymous action by criminals by extortionists it's
1: designed that way it does not have to be it,
0: i don't think it does have to it be it could be redesigned I, I think people should think of redesigning it it was originally designed on the uh, it, it was d- built out of a uh, a technology developed by the defense department so uh, called darpanet it was the communications network among scientists who worked for the defense advanced research projects agency and they all knew each other and so the assumption was hey everybody using this network is a good actor we can uh, Counting on everybody to behave themselves. We don't need
1: to make sure that we know who everyone is. Because exactly. we, we already do.
0: Because we already know everybody and we already know everybody's a good actor so yeah. we don't need to be policing anyone so who cares if we, if people could act anonymously and do bad stuff? Nobody would. Okay. But that's not uh, the real world you live in when you expand the net out to become a worldwide communication agency. So bad actors can go on the internet, do terrible things, tell lies, incite hate, uh, use it for a crime and extortion and they can't be found. So they can't be located. you should
1: have to have a, na- a name and verifiable address, et cetera?
0: Yes. I would re- in, in an ideal world, I'd rebuild an Internet where every keystroke has a signature that lets you identify where it came from.
1: Couldn't that easily be added in? Uh, when I say easily, I, that's a relative you thing. Know, if
0: we got any <laughs> software experts, uh, can call in an and tell us. Do you, you
1: have those over at MIT? What, why isn't somebody on this?
0: Well, my, my my own thought on how to do it is to have the U.S. government itself develop its own Internet for its own communications now. Okay. which would have the benefit of taking it off of the wider net so it wouldn't be so vulnerable to yeah. hacking. Okay. And then uh, have that net be based on um, uh, attribution, not anonymity, so that every keystroke has a signature. And then eventually grow that net into a, the worldwide net and junk the net we have today. The net we have today is just such a pain. I mean, it's think of all the crime. It's think of junk. All it is, it junk. is. It's an awful instrument. You know, 75% of it is porn, um, crime, um, uh, hate. Uh, uh, and spam. Add it all up. And 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 then
1: don't don't forget, giant waste of time. And giant waste of time, that too. (laughs) (laughs) Before this fades into my terrible memory, I want to ask you about uh, this question. If you had a dollar to spend on what was the way you phrased it? U.S. uh, National Security. U.S. National Security. You'd spend it differently than it gets spent now.
0: Yeah, I think the most uh, uh, wise use of a a dollar would be on what People call public diplomacy, or on quote war of ideas, or if you will, shaping the terms of debate abroad. Uh, that's the uh, long pole in the tent, especially in the war on terror and in the whole struggle against uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS.
1: So in Afghanistan, we totally dropped the ball, and the Taliban got to microspin us as, as the new Russians. Yeah, why and is that's that? Because we didn't didn't do
0: it. You got it. Right. Longest war in American history, Afghanistan, no end in sight no sign whatever that we're ever turning the corner there. Uh, Why is that? There's really two big reasons. Uh, One of them is it's impolite to talk about, but it's important to realize, which is that Pakistan is backing the Taliban. And until they stop, we're gonna have a very tough time. The second part of the story though is our own blunder. We have uh, failed, we, the Americans, have failed to shape the terms of debate there and more or less left the Taliban to run wild and define the facts. And as a result, there was just a poll that uh, was, uh, came public recently that 92% of the Afghan people don't know what 9-11 was, OK? 92% don't know what it was, so they don't know there's realize the US Americans have some reason to be in their country and that they have some, you know, something bad happened that gave the US good reason to come. Second, that they don't believe that 9-11, many of those who do know what it was don't believe that uh, it really was an attack on the US. They argue that it was a setup. When you ask those folks who know, they say, yeah, yeah. Americans talk about 9/11, but it was really a setup. The U.S. Uh, and this
1: is all because the Taliban are left alone to spend yes things yes. as they wish, and we didn't spend any money or any effort. Correct on we, doing it.
0: Well, we spent to, some money, but we did it in a very ham-handed way. The folks we sent there, and you know, Americans have to work pretty hard to have local knowledge about Afghanistan. We don't have a lot of Afghans in this country who speak the languages and all the rest. So there was some leaf- leaflets thrown and all the rest, but it was poorly done, not well invested in. Especially they didn't invest in the personnel, you got to get the right people doing it. And as a result, the Taliban were running all over the, you know, lands. It's, it's, their narrative was very simple, which is, once again, foreigners have invaded, they have the same motive that the last guys had. And who were the last guys? It was the Soviet Union, who tore the country apart and committed great crimes. So they were able to tar our people with the great crimes committed in that country by the Soviets. So you want to know why the Afghan people are kind of still kind of sweet on the Taliban and not too sweet on us? Because we, Cause we left, dropped the ball. Yeah, we dropped the ball completely. And to my mind, this goes back to a real problem we have in Washington, which is the, shall we say, a bit too macho culture in the national security community that uh, kinetic uh, power is, is the thing you use if you're really a tough guy. That's the shooting and the fighting and yeah, the, the killing. Yeah, the shooting and the fighting and the killing. And uh, the other stuff... Uh, like uh, the ideas part, the war of ideas, the shaping terms of debate stuff, that's regarded as secondary and
1: is very poorly funded. So you could save lots and lots of money if you'd shape the idea first. They yes. They wouldn't fight us. Correct. They would fight our enemy for Cor- us. Correct, correct. And, and that was you understood. Have, do you understand? Is there a reason why? some Isn't it all about the money somewhere down the line?
0: Well, you know, uh, to me, like, why has this become an unpopular uh, mission in Washington? You know, I. I, I kind of start using sharp words when I t- the macho stuff. I mean, it's just you think it's, it's mach- machismo.
1: It. Not about somehow yeah. the defense industry has its claws deeply into the government. It's well, that, that.
0: there's that too, and there's inherent in- imbalance in the, in the power of the organizations that do these missions. The people who do war of ideas stuff um, are, are smaller, and uh, they're stuck in agencies that don't have much power, like in uh, the State Department, the, w- the, the the public diplomacy mission, is which now is in currently the State
1: considered an enemy of the state.
0: Yeah, and and very poorly funded and, you know, treated with disrespect in Washington. Um, But it is an oddity because this mission of uh, what I'm calling war of ideas or shaping debate was very much uh, respected and cared about by some previous presidents, including FDR, who was really big on it in World War II and very successful at it. And he he harnessed all of Hollywood to tell the Allies' story. He had the best You know, filmmakers in Washington, in sorry, in in Hollywood, spending half their efforts on it. Frank Capra and the whole Why We Fight series and all the rest. And then Truman was really big on it. And Eisenhower. Eisenhower brought the best people he could possibly find to basically run the um, public diplomacy and U.S. uh, I.A. work and also Radio Free Europe uh, and Radio and Voice of America. He had top talent, and he did very well. You'd
1: think, I mean, so. People think the United States is the greatest, and we may be, but if we're the greatest, why are we dropping the ball on this? It's so obvious. How would you, if you were the boss of information, con- convince the Afghan people that we were the good guys? What would you do? Have well, number some films made in their language that told the story of 9-11? First thing I would do is
0: I'd ask a bunch of folks from Afghanistan to help me with it. Yeah, because this you, know, you want to, shall we say, shape how people think. You got to number one show them some respect. You're to listen. You got to know how they think. Yes, and and I to me this is kind of an emotional thing where uh, people will listen to you if you've sort of paid your dues and 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 learned enough about them to demonstrate you care about them and respect them. If you just come wandering in and you don't even know their language and you you, you know you you sort of openly display you're not aware of their customs and so forth. Bam, you've lost it because people don't. Uh, want to hear about uh, stuff that's kind of core to their lives from people who don't know them or care about them. So you've got to pay your dues. And, and and it's hard for U.S. to do that because we don't have a big, if you will, Afghan um, uh, cultural community in the U.S. who speak Afghan languages. We have some, though, and, you know, you could find uh, folks in this country who could be asked to help and help. But you got to get close to the people you're trying to influence. You it can't do seems, it from 30,000 feet.
1: Seems so obvious. Is it possible that Washington is so corrupt and so focused on their little clubs, the club that is the Senate, the expensive lunch club, maintaining power, getting re-elected, that they really don't even care about really fixing things and doing them right? Is that possible? Like, we really don't care about that. Well, we, want, we want to make money. We want to use our office to make money for us.
0: You know, I think it's it's uh, almost, uh, 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 almost a simpler explanation. Um, uh The American national security debate, in my opinion, is really primitive. We don't even talk about sort of the basic moving parts of strategy. What are the main elements of a of a program we would need to defeat Al Qaeda? You know, you you're kind of rolling your eyes at the idea that we haven't bothered to create a war. Did I roll them? Well, a little bit. Maybe you know I was imagining. You know, (laughs) you were looking not too happy. Like, how can they be so dumb? All right. Um, But uh, to me, in order to realize you're making a mistake, you got to start by saying, what's the right strategy uh, to to succeed in this mission? And there's virtually no discussion in Washington about what should be the strategy for dealing with radical Sunni Islam, with specifically al-Qaeda and ISIS. Have you ever seen anybody say, "Okay, here's the grand strategy for it. Here's the overall plan. Here's the roles and missions we need to execute. Uh, on the on the on the grand plan. Therefore, here's the capabilities we need. Here's the budget we need. This just isn't how people talk in Washington.
1: No, I get it. The, you know that they're a hammer and everything looks like a nail, and that's it.
0: Correct. And they also love to, you know, shall we say, talk about the minutia first. Let's talk about whether we ought to buy a particular airplane or not. And let's talk about, you know, who's in and who's out in the embassy, and whether, you know, the the guy who's the commander ought to be switched in or out. This is all, you know, tertiary stuff. First, you got to start with the right strategy. And, and everything's upside down. And it always has been this way in our national security debate in Washington. Basically, Americans just don't take national security all that seriously. That's, that's the real bottom line here. And I, I tell my students that when, you know, one of the reasons is, basically, we're kind of the dumb, lucky country. We've never had a cultural experience of having a rain of fire come down upon us and kill us by the millions due to our own follies. Every other major power has had that experience. And if you go to Europe and talk about national security with people, there's just a sobriety in the way they do it that is missing here, and it has a lot to do with the fact that they've had the experience I just mentioned, having a rain of fire come down to the sky and kill millions due to their own follies. It's, the French have had it, and the, the Germans have had it, and, and the Spanish have had it, and the British have had it, and the Russians have had it a bunch of times, and, and they don't regard national security as kind of a, a joke, and, and we really kind of do, and, and it's time for us to grow up and stop it.
1: Wow. Micah in Maine first. Hi, Micah. Micah. Good morning. Good Speaking of Afghanistan, I had a question uh, about that. And didn't we –
0: we were fighting a war against the Russians in Afghanistan surreptitiously under kind of a black war by arming the Afghans to drive the Russians out. I think that was back in the uh, 70s and 80s. And at the end of that war, once the Russians finally withdrew, we kind of left Afghanistan alone. We just pulled out rather than starting educational programs and letting them know that it was the Americans that actually funded that whole war and got the Russians out of there. Wasn't that the
1: time when we should have continued to go and make the Afghans started starting educational programs and let the Afghans know that we were the ones that actually helped them?
0: You know, Mike, that's just a brilliant comment. You're completely right. Micah. 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 Thank you for that comment. That's exactly right. Um, uh, the, uh, basically, uh, folks in charge of the U.S. covert war in Afghanistan, uh, as, as soon as the um, uh, the last, uh, shall we say, Soviet puppet government was overthrown, which was, I think, 92, um, the uh, uh, Bush team just said, okay, fine, mission accomplished, out we go. They made no effort to bring Afghanistan to a soft landing. Um, and uh, this that was a country it needed to be brought to a soft landing. It had been totally racked, ruined, and destroyed by... Uh, you know uh, 13 years of of horrifying warfare Uh, and I and there was folks who at the time said wait a minute what are you doing we've got to help that country come to a soft landing meaning come to some kind of new order which will be peaceful and stable Uh, and um, in fact there's folks here in Boston who helped with that Ali Ben-Wazizi who's a professor at uh, BC might have him come in and talk about that sometime because he was involved in trying to talk the policy folks in Washington into hey let's let's try to do some reconstruction here uh, and uh, if we don't bring it to a soft landing, it won't get there. Um, but th- it was, again, kind of the macho thing. I still remember there was two groups in the State Department, the, 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 the uh, Peacers and the Bleeders. And uh, the Bleeders was a faction in the State Department who said, look, the only thing we're trying to do in Afghanistan is bleed the Soviet Union. Let's keep this war going until we've imposed some costs on the Sovs. And then when we've achieved that, we've achieved our mission. Uh, we're we're not really trying to, you know, make a better world happen in Afghanistan. And to me, this was so unwise. And people should remember, by the way, it's not. This didn't just lead to the current mess where we have the Taliban uh, and the uh, ISIS infesting that country. It led to al-Qaeda, too. I mean, al-Qaeda, in the end, was able to infest Afghanistan and use it as its base for 9-11.
1: Micah, great question, man. Great, great. Uh, We're going to break. Then we'll talk to John and Framingham. And find out about Bolton and how that might... The release of Bolton might affect things in the very near immediate future. It's WBZ. Mouths and out came talk. Jay Talk. Jay talking. Talk
0: with Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. With the Lucky Landslots, slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Mr. Bradley. He's very smart. Check out the big brain on Brad. Bradley J in my brain. Good conversation. I can ascertain. An education, which you can apply. Excuse me, while I call this guy.
0: Jay talking with Bradley J, WBZ News Radio 1030.
1: Wbz, John in Framingham. We're fortunate to have Stephen Van Evers here. A, we're talking foreign policy, but it's not dry foreign policy. It's out sort of history and and foreign policy and all rolled into one. John in Framingham, hi. Good e- Good morning, guys. Morning. Um, yeah, you, you know it's nice to have a, a campaign of ideas, but let's look at that country. How much electricity is there? How many people know how to read? How many people are even in reach of a radio? And, uh, I mean, it sounds like it's a word-of-mouth country. And the Taliban, who really, well, weren't they the ones that grow the opium, which is basically the country's number one export? Um, I I mean,
0: this is, uh, I don't know, this is a a sticky wicket. I really
1: don't know how to get out of this. Even if all those things would be true, uh, people, you can communicate with folks. There are ways to do it. it. It happened way before radio was invented true but these guys carry guns and if they don't like you they shoot you all so right let's that, let the expert answer communication this <laughs> go ahead Stephen.
0: well i guess i'd say that uh you know what, what john says is true you couldn't use the typical shall we say industrial society mode of communicating if you want to reach the afghan people but the um the i to my mind the answer is that life like every society the afghan societies have influencers and, and who are they? Well, of course they're going to be tribal leaders uh, and they're going to be clergy people and you got to find those folks and talk to them one-on-one and, and um, uh, ask motivate them, them and motivate them and get them to spread the word. but if you if you reach the, the key influencers the, the people of social influence who are habitually listened to with more respect than others uh, and communicate with them, that's the way you know I would I would I would start there.
1: Great and, point, yeah, John, yeah. appreciate it and good answer. Thank you. okay it seems like more recently, Netanyahu is openly siding with this administration I was curious about whether or not you thought that was smart for them because before they kind of enjoyed bipartisan support and then now he's getting involved in, a, in the partisan fight any any uh, potential uh, yeah
0: a, a lot of is, a that? lot of Israelis are worried about this too because Israel's sort of political strategy for years has been well number one that they feel, uh, that maintaining American support, maintaining their alliance with the U.S. is crucially important, uh, and um, number two, the best way to do that is you better be friends with all the major parties in the U.S. If you become uh, friends with one party and enemies of another, then you're not going to Someday, it's going to bite gonna, you. It's going to bite you, exactly, and so uh, Netanyahu really crossed the line back in uh, 20, uh, what year was it, uh, Obama was still president, when he went to the Congress, and he um, uh, gave a speech basically against the JCPOA, uh, but he was mobilizing the Republicans into opposition to Obama's foreign policy. And it's sort of a no-no to get involved in the domestic politics of another country's foreign policy. You can expect pretty bad reaction.
1: And did, did he weigh the pros and cons, do you think? Did, it, did he weigh them correctly? Would I think
0: Netanyahu ha- thinks he's a cut above others in his ability to influence people in the U.S., and maybe he's right about it, that you know what he sort of reportedly says back in, in Jerusalem is uh, to his colleagues, his colleagues all say, Bebe, be more careful. Stop it. Don't try to uh, uh, think you can get everyone in America to dance to your tune. Sometime you'll rile, rile people up. And he says, but you guys don't get how it really works over there. If you know how to talk to the public, you can mobilize public support. So he's kind of, I think he's a little bit, I think he's overconfident that he can uh, come here and mobilize partisan support uh, and uh, make good results out of it. Um, he's, It's a very dangerous game he's playing. Okay. I also think Americans should object to it. I mean, to me, I think Americans should object to any foreign leader coming here and instructing us on what our interests are, what our values are, what's good for us. There should be unanimous objection to that from both parties always.
1: Okay. Now John Bolton is gone. He was a super hawk. Uh, too much of a hawk for the president? Maybe you can shine some light on this, because I only I only know the very the basics that everyone knows.
0: So he got fired in kind of a hurry. It sounds like the president just got irked. We're not sure exactly what irked him, um, but he gets irked a lot. Um, Bolton, Bolton um, there are two big features to the guy, both of them, I think, big negatives. One is he really wasn't behaving like the national security advisor. The job of the national security advisor is to... Uh, marshal all of the different serious uh, opinions on a policy problem, and make sure the president is aware of the diversity of, shall we say, serious advice that he might want to listen to. Not for his job is not to go in there and be a jihadist for one point of view. It's to bring uh, a diverse range of serious viewpoints to the president, so the president has a sense of what the, all the arguments are and can weigh them.
1: But maybe the president doesn't want to do that. He's the delegator want say, you know you decide that's
0: well that's a great question you know uh, did, did the president even want it and but the previous folks around uh, uh, Trump in the national security community have, have taken the view you know listen we're going to treat you like a serious president even if you don't want to be one. Uh, Mattis did McMaster did McMaster was the previous national security advisor he, he acted like one he brought all the views to the president. Uh, Mattis tried to keep things on, on the very sober uh, uh, up and up. Uh, and uh, uh, so did the former uh, uh, director of national intelligence. Um, and uh, so they've always said, you know, fine, m- maybe you're not that interested, but, but we're still going to have a serious discussion okay. here while, while we're in the room. Bolton didn't do that. Bolton just went in there and, and uh, argued. He also, I think, tried to manipulate the president. I think that's the real reason the president fired him.
1: Final, I, the president finally caught on.
0: Yes, I think. I was sort of holding my breath for weeks there, wondering, you know, is Trump going to really realize, yes or no, that that, that uh, uh, Bolton's trying to back him into a war with Iran. And he's trying to get him to a position where things are going to happen that are going to box Trump in and force him to use force.
1: So we're all better off without Bolton.
0: I think so, yeah. Well, let's just say... It's hard to imagine anybody worse. I, I also think a third thing about him, which I think in my own view, his foreign policy instincts are very bad. He is a big use forcer guy. He's, uh, people say, you know, he's never met a war. He didn't want to fight. And it's kind of true. He, he recommends use of force profligately.
1: <laughs> he still thinks Iraq was a good idea.
0: Yeah, he still thinks the war in Iraq was a good idea. Um, and to my mind, it's like, you know, what are you saying, man? I mean, clearly that was a mistake. Uh, and, uh, you know, people should admit their mistakes, but how can he okay. say that? And and, that? and and this war, he, he, he it's quite clear he wants a war with Iran, and I said it earlier on the show, that's a real war. Yeah. That's not a that's not a little war like the Iraq War. I mean, we're, we're now talking, like, about little wars, Iraq right. War, Afghanistan War. The Iran War, that's a whole, if you will, horse of a different color. Um,
1: that's uh, like a or, Korean War?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, kind of a Korean War type of thing. I, I, I like to organize wars into... You know, is it a Washington Mall memorial-sized war, meaning a big enough war that we'd have to put a memorial on the mall to remember it later? And I think the war with Iran, that's that's one of those wars where you're gonna have to put a nice memorial on the mall. Stephen Afterwards. Van
1: Ever, you are spectacular. Not only do you know so much, but you're real radio-friendly, and I really appreciate the way the way you come across. It's been fun. I feel very comfortable with you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring